0: Good morning everybody, I am Sikdash Sharma. I am going to present the Hindu editorial dated 27th December 2021. This podcast is for those who do not have time to read newspapers themselves. The analysis of the editorial is given on the last segment of the podcast. Let's get started. Happy Preparation! the elderly are assets, not dependents. Proof of a truly developed country lies in the way it not only nurtures its young but also cares for its elders equally. This article is written by Kiran Karnik. In the past few decades, concerns about population explosion have given way to joy about a demographic dividend. The latter is expected to give A push to economic growth due to the lower dependency ratio, which results from having a larger proportion of the population in the working age group. The Asian Tigers countries such as South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore, as also China have exemplified the benefits. nfhs 5. Data The larger youth population is also expected to give an impetus to innovation and entrepreneurship. Not surprisingly, then the young are in focus with many programs to facilitate their education, entrepreneurship, sports training, etc., but also well being. This, as it must be, just not from an economic viewpoint, but especially from the perspective of health. Poor health, like inadequate education, could well nullify the demographic advantage. Of concern is data from the latest nfhs 5 which indicates that while much progress has been made, the metrics for infant and child health continues to be decimal, with some being even lower than what they were 5 years ago. Yet, even as we pay attention to the young, there is both need and benefit in also looking at the other end of this spectrum. Life expectancy in India has risen from 50 to 70 years. As a result, the number of elders those over 60 years is already 137 million, and expected to increase by 40% to 195 million in 2031, and 300 million by 2050, while one perspective would look at them as dependents and therefore a drag on the economy, a rather different view would look at them as a potential asset, a massive resource of experienced, knowledgeable people. Converting them from dependents to productive members of society depends on two primary factors their health and their capabilities Changing health care needs Generally the elderly population needs more medical attention of a diverse range as per the first ever longitudinal aging study in India 11% of the elderly suffer from at least one form of impairment Locomotor mental visual and hearing it is estimated that 58 lakh Indians die from non-communicable diseases in India annually and cardiovascular diseases prevalence is estimated to be 34% among 60-70 to years old, rising to 37% in those above 75 years. As we move to a demographic where The growth rate of elders far exceeds that of the young. Perhaps the biggest challenge that the country would face is to provide a range of quality, affordable, and accessible health care services to the elderly. They require an array of specialized medical services at home, including tele or home consultations, physiotherapy, rehabilitation services, mental health counseling and treatment, as well as pharmaceutical diagnostic services. These needs are particularly evident now, with elders being advised to stay indoors as a precaution against a novel coronavirus epidemic. As per the 2016 Healthcare Access and Quality Index, India improved its HAQ scores from 24.7 in 1990 to 41.2 in 2016. However, we still are significantly below the global average of 54 points ranking at the spot of 145 out of 195 countries. The low HAQ worsens even further in small cities and rural areas where basic quality healthcare services are very inadequate. Factors such as familial neglect, low education levels, socio-cultural beliefs and stigma, low trust on institutionalised healthcare services, and affordability excurbate the situation for the elders. Inequity in healthcare access compounds the problems for the elderly, who are already physically, financially, and at times psychologically restricted in understanding, responding to, and seeking medical care for various ailments. Consequently, most of them live their years in neglect, inadequate schemes. Healthcare of the elderly has sadly been greatly neglected. An overwhelming proportion of the elders are from the lower socioeconomic strata, including many who are destitute. They are unable to afford the cost of healthcare and slip into ever poorer health. The vicious cycle of poor health and unaffordable health costs is further accelerated by their inability to earn a livelihood. As a result, not only are they economically unproductive, but are dependent on support from family or others. This and poor physical health adds to their mental and emotional problems. The government does have schemes that cover the elderly and seeks to take care of these issues, but they are completely inadequate. Despite Ayushman Bharat, the government's health insurance scheme for the deprived and private health insurance, Aniti Ayog report indicates that 400 million Indians do not have any financial cover for health expenses. One can be sure that a very large number of elders are among the uncovered. Both the central states have pension schemes for the elders, but these pro- these provide but a pe- pit- pittance as low as 350 rupees to 400 rupees a month in some states. Even this is not universal. A 2007 law requires states to ensure earmarked facilities for elders in every district hospital headed by a doctor with experience in psychiatric care. Yet, a status report filed by the government and the Supreme Court of India in 2019 stated that 16 states and union territories did not have a single ward or bed dedicated to elders opportunities and challenges. Given the range of diverse challenges, can India take care of its aging population? The success of the COVID-19 vaccination strategy gives hope. A senior's first approach led to over 73% of elderly population receiving at least one dose and around 40% being doubly vaccinated by October 2021. Considering the demographic trends, India should reimagine its entire healthcare policy for the next few decades with an elderly prioritizing approach. As senior citizens require the most diverse array of healthcare services, the creation of adequate services for them will benefit all other age groups. Apart from legislating pro elderly healthcare and insurance policies, India needs to aggressively take certain measures while finding opportunities amidst their challenge. India needs to rapidly increase its public healthcare spendings and invest heavily in the creation of well-equipped and staffed medical care facilities and home healthcare and rehabilitation services. Presently, India has a major deficit in infrastructure and skilled medical care resources with 1.3 hospital beds, 0.65 physicians, and 1.3 nurses for every 1,000 people. Over the next decades, we have the potential to add more than 3 million beds, 1.54 million doctors and 2.4 million nurses. We need to accelerate implementation of programs such as National Programme for Healthcare of the Elderly, that is NPHCE. The Ayushman, Bharat and PMJ ecosystem need to be further expanded and similar special healthcare cover. age schemes and services need to be created for senior citizens from the lower economic strata. The National Digital Health Mission has tremendous potential to expand medical consultation into the interiors of the country. However, this requires additional literacy campaign for senior citizens. These essential steps will help to cover convert elders into a massive resource for social, cultural and economic development, giving an altogether different perspective to demographic dividend. After all, the proof of a to- truly evolved and caring nation lies in the way it not only nurtures its young, but also how it cares for its aging population. Kiran Karnik is a shareperson, help age India, and an author. His latest book is Decisive Decade, India 2013, Gazelle or Hippo? A chance to tap India's high equity in Myanmar Though there are challenges and momentum gained from the Indian Foreign Secretary's recent visit must not be lost. This article is written by Rajiv Bhatia. The short visit to Myanmar December 2022 to 23 by India's Foreign Secretary Harshward Shringla Sringla had a clearly etched mandate. To deepen cooperation with an important neighbor, his mission succeeded to a large extent, but challenges remain. The Indian delegation took a special flight to Naupetau and Yangon. It suddenly eased logistics for the official but was fully utilized as it only also carried one million India-made vaccine doses as a gift to the people of Myanmar. Regional Dimension Mr. Sringla followed India's calibrated middle-path position, not the best reflexive policy of condemnation, threats and sanctions against the military regime, but a position reflective of regional realities. It is no easy task. Since a military coup on February 1, 2021, the international community has stayed dividend on how to address the derailment of Myanmar's transition to democracy. For a decade, the country's hybrid democracy based on power sharing between the military and elected representatives ran well enough. But an overwhelming electoral victory of National League for Democracy led by Do Aung San Suu Kyi in in November 2021 unnerved the military leadership. It apprehended that armed with a new mandate, the NLD would move fast to clip the army's wing. The Data Myanmar's military moved faster, seizing power in violation of the constitution and putting down the opposition with an iron hand. The results have been disastrous for democracy, economy, and the people's well-being, especially as the political crisis coincided with COVID-19 ravaging the golden land. Global dismay, uh, dismay was evident in the Western sanctions, but others such as Russia saw the opportunity to strengthen ties with the new rulers. China regretted the loss of Dawson Suu Kyi as a valuable ally but took urgent steps to stabilize and expand cooperation with the military regime. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations, that is ASEAN, first showed creativity through its five point consensus formula but later its unity stood damaged once Myanmar's top leader, Senior General Min Aung Huang, Refused to cooperate in the formula's implementation. In this highly polarized and complex situation, Mr. Shringla has succeeded in holding substantive discussion with the top state administrative council, leadership, and political parties, including the NLD in Nauhitao, as well as senior general men Ong Kyuang and representatives of civil society in Yangon. India's position, as conveyed to Myanmar, is similar to and supportive of ASEAN. Release of political prisoners, resolution of issues through dialogue, cessation of all violence, full cooperation with ASEAN. In recent years, India has assisted Myanmar through capacity building programs for strengthening the transition to democracy. This assistance remains available, but it is not an offer of mediation by India in the military-NLD conflict. This burden will have to be borne by ASEAN that india's position carries confidence is reflected in an unusual interactive meeting mr shingla held with a selective group of myanmar-based foreign ambassadors bilateral concerns myanmar's military responding as it can india's principal concerns pertaining to border security and stability in its neighborhood were clearly conveyed especially the noticeable escalations of activists of anti-india insurgent groups by handing over five cadres of Manipur People's Liberation Army to Indian authorities before the Shangla visit, the military government demonstrated its desire for cooperation. It also renewed the previous pledge that its nation's territory would not be allowed to be used for any activities inimical to India. The second issue, the outcome of Myanmar's instability, is that of refugees. Several thousands of Myanmar people have sought shelter in Mizoram. This will only be reversed by a political settlement in Myanmar through dialogue. This issue too was taken up seriously despite the understandable reiteration later of known positions in the regime's formal take on discussion last week. Economic cooperation has always been a major agenda item in all bilateral discussion with Myanmar. This visit was no exception, with the usual emphasis on people-centric socio-economic developmental projects. Central to this is India's long delayed commitment to expeditious implementation of mega initiatives such as trilateral highways, Kaladan projects. Unfortunately, no revised deadlines were announced. These projects continue to be the Achilles heel of the relationship. Protocol departure Still, India continues to have high equity in Myanmar, which it must now carefully leverage. It is reflected in the special gesture made by Senior General Min Oang Huang, who is Chairman of the SAC and Prime Minister to receive Mr. Sringala and hold detailed discussion in Yangon. This is unusual. The Myanmar establishment is highly protocol conscious. My innings as ambassador in Yangon saw three visits by the Indian Foreign Secretary, that is two different office holders, but they were not received by the regime's highest dignitary. The protocol departure for Mr. Shingla revealed current political realities, which should be carefully factored in by those who wrongly argue that China is the only friend Myanmar has. Also, though the request for the Indian Foreign Secretary's call on the Suu Kyi was not exceeded to, as was expected, it should be underlined that New Delhi made the request. There are other ways to pursue the matter as India has done in the past. A quiet approach then resulted in a rare call by this writer on Daw Suki in January 2003 when she was still under house arrest, projecting the request this time around May yet produced result. Back home. The steps to take. Both the government and the opposition in Myanmar seems to understand India's sober approach. India can leverage the gains of this visit and keep up the momentum by inviting Myanmar's foreign minister at an appropriate time as well as other important stakeholders such as leaders of political parties, civil society and think thanks to India for deliberations with their counterparts here. The single goal should be to put Myanmar back on the path of becoming a stable, democratic and federal union. Rajiv Bhatia is distinguished fellow Gateway House and a former ambassador to Myanmar. Iran nuclear talks reverberate in the Gulf the gulf cooperation council's interests directly impinge on the outcome of the discussions this article is written by Talmiz Tal- ahmed while iran is engaged in negotiations in vienna on matters relating to uss reentry into joint comprehensive plan of action JCPOA, and the relax- relaxation of the sanctions two parties absent at the talks are watching developments at a very at very close cost Israel and the six states of the Gulf Cooperation Council, that is GCC, whose interests directly impinged on the outcomes of the discussion. Israel, in public remarks, has focused on Iran's progress towards weaponization while ignoring its own nuclear weapons capability. Serving and uh, retired security officials have been mobilized to urge immediate and harsh military actions on Iran. Unlike Israel's theatrics, the GCC countries have been pursuing a more low key but more constructive and approach to regional challenges diplomatic engagements with iran this is largely because the uss credibility as a gcc security partner was severely dented when president donald trump failed to protect their interests in the face of iranians attack on the assets in the 2019 us standing in the region reached rock bottom during its chaotic withdrawal from afghanistan in august this year GCC's Engagement with Iran The UAE had first reached out to Iran in July 2019 when its senior officials visited Tehran to discuss maritime security. Following the US assassination of Iranian General Qasim Soleimani in January 2020, the UAE and Saudi Arabia had called on the US to reduce regional tensions, recognizing that more conflict would bring the GCC states in the direct line of an Iranian retaliation. The GCC country's estrangement from the US security partnership has been further encouraged by President Joe Biden's avoided disengagements from the region in favor of containing China in the Indo-Pacific. Since April this year, Saudi Arabia and Iran have had five meetings in Baghdad, mainly to rebuild confidence between them, re-establish diplomatic ties, and address specific areas of conflict, Yemen and Syria. Given the hostility over a decade, no major success has been announced so far, but talks are ongoing. The revival of the nuclear to- uh, talks with Iran from November and Israeli Sabbath rattling through the Vienna negotiations have pushed the GCC states to take their destinies in their own hands, as noted by Abu Dhabi-based commentator Ragida Dergham. On November 23rd, Iran's chief negotiator, negotiator Bagheri Kani, visited Abu Dhabi possibly to seek the UAE's good offices to facilitate an agreement with the U.S. Soon thereafter, the UAE's influential National Security Advisor Sheikh Tanbun Bin Zayed visited Tehran on December 6. Reports say that Iran may have sought the UAE's help to facilitate financial transactions once the sanctions are eased. State tribes are already flourishing in 2021-22. Iran's imports from the UAE are exempted to reach $12 billion. UAE officials have also made some significant public statements relating to Iran. Anwar Gargash, Foreign Affairs Advisor to the UAE President, said at a conference in Washington in early December that, that the states should avoid vacuum and escalation. With Adversaries and Rivals The message from the UAE is that this is the era of crisis management and the conflict resolution and it would pursue re- reapproachment among the regional states. The UAE's ties with Israel are a part of this approach. The visit of Prime Minister Naftali Bennett to Abu Dhabi on December 13 took, a pla- took place a week after Sheikh Tar- Tehnaun's visit to Tehran. In 10 months of 2021, UAE-Israel trade has reached $875 million, beside the $1 billion UAE stake in Israel's summer gas field. Six flights a day from Israel to Dubai are bringing in several thousand Israeli businessmen and tourists to the UAE. The UAE is making it clear that its regional partnership it does not have a zero-sum approach. From Vienna, instead of hard news, we have seen public posturing by the US to camouflage its own responsibility for the present imbroglio. Iran's inconsistence at the US return to the JCPOA removes the sanction it had imposed under the rubric of maximum pressure and gives some assurance that a future US administration will not withdraw from the agreement makes complete sense. But the polarized political environment in the US, Mr. Biden's weak political position in Congress and the pervasive hostility to the Islamic Republic make it impossible for the US to accept Iran's demand. What we are therefore left with is the US delegation, placing on Iran the onus of public possible failures of the talks by blaming it for being hard-line, irrational and not seriously interested in a positive outcome. In this situation, unless there is a real change in the US's approach, it seems unlikely that Vienna will deliver an agreement. What does this mean for the Gulf? more u.s sanctions are more, uh, and more israeli aggressiveness are well past their use by date the harshest u.s sanctions on iran have failed to bring iran back to the negotiating table or brought und- about regime change in fact as china buys more iranian oil and the ua pursues trade ties the death knell of the maximum pressure regime is already being sounded U.S. And Israeli commentators are also speaking about the operational difficulties involved in an effective strike on Iran's nuclear programs and the harmful implications that could have for Israel itself and the region, while even providing an impetus to the weapons programs that Iran has so far rejected. To avoid the possibility of a military attack, the Iranian spokesman in Vienna has just said that Iran will not enrich uranium beyond 60% even if the talks fail. Regional security architecture In this background, there are two possible scenarios for regional security. In the absence of a nuclear deal, it is likely that Israel will push for a normalization of ties with more Arab states so that it builds a coalition of regional states against Iran. However, it is difficult to see how this can be achieved. There is already widespread popular opposition to this initiative across West Asia. Again, since Iran will not be intimidated into serving the US-Israeli agenda, it will only aggravate regional instability and potent conflict. A more useful ra- framework for the region would be an inclusive security arrangement the first steps in bringing iran into this architecture have already been taken through the several rounds of the saudi iran dialogues and the uae iran engagements the baghdad conference in august that brought together all the regional states and the recent saudi effort to build a security consensus among the gcc states at the recent Riyadh summit this summit has accepted strategic integration common foreign policies and a joint defense agreement but given the divisions within the gcc and the position of qatar kuwait oman oman Such a consensus will only emerge if Iran is integrated into the security framework. Israel's inclusion will be more difficult. Its domestic politics has been framed for decades on the basis of hostility towards Iran. But the valuable results of a more accommodative approach to the region, already apparent in the positive results yielded by normalization with the UAE, Could over time help Israel's leaders see the benefits of deeper integration with the West Asian neighborhood? Perhaps this is what former Prime Minister Ehud Barak had in mind when he wrote recently that Iran's ability to pursue its nuclear program despite the severest U.S. sanctions is a new reality that requires a sober assessment of the situation, decision and actions and not hollow public threats. Talmiz Ahmed is a former diplomat.